Well, hello, everyone. It is good to see you today. We're so excited to have Jack Barsky here. Uh, I want to say hello to those of you here in St. Charles, those in DeKalb, in Blackberry Creek, and Streamwood Bartlett, our other campuses, and those of you joining us online. We know a lot of you check out the church that way, and so we're so glad that you can join us today. Let's all together give a warm welcome for Jack as he comes out here on stage. Jack, thanks for being here. It's exciting that we get to hear your story and you get to tell it. There's, there's so much in this story. But most of us at this moment, all we know about you is that you were a spy. You're doing it again. Don't call me a spy. I prefer secret agent. How, how about an international man of mystery? Is that a little sexier? Yeah, baby. <laughs> Well, how about, uh, by way of getting to know you, uh, let's do a little lightning round. I'll ask some questions. You can kind of give uh, some quick answers here. So let's start with this. Uh, who's your favorite movie or TV spy? Uh, I have to admit I don't have one because in the movies and on TV, you don't have a realistic uh, depiction of what it's like to uh, spend time in the murky world, of uh, undercover world. I have a favorite author whose name is John Le Carre. Uh, he spent some time in English intelligence, British intelligence, and he really writes very realistically about that world. And if anybody wants to know in detail besides my uh, memoir of what it's like to, to, to operate there, Le Carre is, is the source. So, so you're saying James Bond isn't that realistic? <laughs> and that's my final answer. <laughs> uh, tell me something uh, about Germany that you miss that you wish was in America. Uh, well, first of all, beer. <laughs> I, when I came to the United States in uh, 1978, there, w there was rarely any good beer to be found here. Uh, conversely, in Germany, there is no bad beer. So number one. Number two is... There's a German tendency to be excellent and, you know, really nitpicky about details. And as a result, uh, for instance, you won't find Walmarts in Germany. There's just, there's Dumb. not enough quality there. And, uh, and th some comfort food yeah. that, that I grew up with. Yeah. Uh, what languages do you speak? Um, in order of proficiency descending, uh, it's, surprisingly it's English, not the, my mother tongue, which is German, which comes second. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good in Spanish, uh, understand quite a bit of Russian, and even uh, studied some French uh, in the United States. Your, your birth name, we, we tried to say it in the video, but I don't think we got the pronunciation right. How do you actually say the name you're born with? Yeah, well, that's impossible. This is, this is, uh, this is the, the, the types of sounds that foreigners should not attempt. <laughs> and I, I cringe every time I make them nowadays because they sound foreign to me, but I, I'm going to oblige and say it slowly. Albrecht Dietrich. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> Um, so that's the name you were born with, but how many different identities have you had? Uh, really only two that I lived under for long periods of time, such as the one that I have now. This is my official, now officially blessed by the United States government identity and, and the German one uh, that, uh, that I lived under in Germany until the age of 28. Oh. And then I had various false passports I traveled with that adds another 16 to 18 different names, backstories, and so forth. Gets a little complicated sometimes, particularly when, when you switch passports uh, uh, and then you need to remember that you're not that person, but you're this person. Uh, so it, 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 you have to be really focused on who you are at any given point in time. Okay, tell me honestly, if you had to kill me, could you do it with just your pinky, or would it take your whole hand? I'm going to share a secret just with you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I got new lenses, and they have laser power. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a, a little bit about uh, the, the beginning of your life. So you're born in East Germany uh, just after the war has ended. Um, tell me a little bit about that, especially your impression of America at that time. Well, when we started to be influenced ideologically, and it probably started somewhere around kindergarten, first grade, 
uh, America was the quintessential evil on the planet, the source of all evil, the source of uh, you know suppression of the third world, uh, the country that supported West Germany, which was our immediate enemy, uh, where we were taught that West Germany was fundamentally the successor state of, of, of the Nazi state. So there was nothing good to be said or heard about America. As a matter of fact, I still remember my first cartoon that, that I recall was a caricature of President Eisenhower. And to me, Eisenhower was the, the uh, personification of evil. Hmm. Wow. And, and your, your impression of religion, did you have some sense of God or, or any faith? Uh, no. There was no religion in my life. As a matter of fact, there wasn't even, uh, there was churches, but we wouldn't go there. There was Christmas, but Christmas was a pagan ritual. There was no Christ in Christmas. Uh, there was none. Uh, I, at the age of 10, I found a Bible in my grandfather's house. And I was just curious, what is this? And I started reading it, you know. There's this Adam and Eve story and how God created the world. This is interesting. And then you got to the point where you have this several pages of gene genealogy. Uh, is that the right word? <laughs> Whatever, Wait, who begat whom and, and that whole sequence of strange names. And I said, okay, that's not for me. I put it away. So and that's it. That was, that, that was literally the only thing, uh, uh, the uh, only uh, contact I had with religion other than what we were taught by Marxism, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, religion is opiate for the people. That's yeah. all I knew. It was evil. It was dumb, stupid, detestable, just bad. Yeah. So you, you're recruited into the KGB when you're in college. You're, mm -hmm. you're studying chemistry there. Right. And you want to, you want to become a chem chemistry professor. Um, and I, I don't want to insult any chemistry teachers here, but I've had a few. And none of them really struck me as the sort of, you know, 007 type. So uh, what made you say, uh, yes, I think I can do this, and yes, I want to do this? Well, you had the chemistry teachers who became teachers, <laughs> and I didn't. So, so I'm, I'm the exception to that rule. You know, I always had a sense of adventure. I always tried, you know, different ways to to the job, and different paths. You know, I always, I was always, I've always been very curious. So that, but when when the KGB uh, introduced themselves and we started a relationship. I became enamored by the idea that I would be able to help along history. And history was, to us, was, there was, it was a foregone conclusion that communism would eventually conquer the world. And so I would be able to participate in building that worker's paradise. So there was an ideological foundation that was very strong. But then you add to this the sense of adventure and the and the appeal to a 25-year-old with a big ego uh, who, who was recruited by one of the biggest, strongest, most powerful organizations on the planet who wooed you, I mean, that made me feel good. And you add to that the knowledge that I would be able to travel to the West, which uh, others in East Germany were not allowed, and, you know, break laws and live out, fundamentally be a special guy that, you know, that's a very powerful package. Yeah, um, and, and probably would help with the ladies too, right? Yeah, <laughs> we, we, uh, we had our uh, Soviet and East German version of the James Bond, the, the communist spy, and what they had in common with James Bond, they also got the girl. Yeah. So <laughs> I thought there was uh, some chance of me finally to, you know, have some success with the ladies, but because uh, I was striking out early on a lot. Yeah. Um, so you say yes, you, you start get it, to get trained in some of the mechanics of being a spy, uh, kind of the, the codes and the losing it. Secret agent. Secret agent, sorry. <laughs> International man of mystery, the skills of that. Um, and you are, uh, you're, you're learning all of that. And then, uh, and, and by the way, there's a ton of detail uh, about that sort of thing in Jack's book. Uh, it's really intriguing. There's way more than we can cover in the time that we've got. Um, the, the book is on sale after this. And uh, Jack's going to be in the bookstore for uh, a book signing, by the way. Um, so you'll want to go there and meet him with that. Um, but you get trained. And then they uh, send you to the U.S. You kind of have to 
bring yourself over here. Uh, and you show up, you actually show up in Chicago, right? I do, yeah. Uh, the training altogether was about five years. Five years intensive training. Two of those years I spent in Moscow learning English. Um, yeah, and then they sent me off. Uh, I had $10,000 in cash with me when I left Moscow. When I came to Chicago, this had shrunk into about 7,000. Um, Chicago was a way station, and right here, my career could have ended in a bad way. You want to know the story? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, so I get here, and I had no knowledge of what Chicago was like. Neither had any one of the people that were training me in Moscow, because there was no Russian slash Soviet uh, representation in this city. So I had no idea where to go, what areas to uh, avoid. Uh, so how do you find a hotel? I looked in the yellow pages. I found a hotel with an address. Uh, is there a street that's called Wabash Street or something like that? Yeah, I can yeah, remember. Yeah, there was something a, like that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, I called them up, and I reserved a room for two nights. They said, OK. Um, and uh, then I get a taxi, and I tell the taxi driver, uh, driver the address, and he turned around like this, and he looked at me like, funny. And I realized when I entered the lobby of that hotel, I had an inkling what that funny look meant because the, the, uh, the desk the, where the clerk sat behind was covered, was protected by plexiglass. Little, little slot there. With a little slot where you hand over the money and get your key. And that was kind of odd. And the room was really run down, and the L was not too far away. Uh, later on, I, I had no idea why that was, but later on, I found that I was in the center of the South Side yeah. with yeah. $7,000 in cash. And, you know, pretty much a standout. What is this guy doing here? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I survived that, uh, that one night, and I ran out of there real quick and marched north. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the way you describe it in your book, you say there are there were two kinds of agents here in the U.S. and uh, there are the diplomatic kind of the, the legal agents. They work for the UN. They're the official contact between the Soviet Union and the U.S. Right. But uh, there are illegal agents, and, right. and you were one of those. So, explain what your role was supposed to be. Right. Um, well, it's people who have looked into this a little bit understand that at least half the diplomats coming out of the Soviet Union or now days out of Russia are actually real employees uh, of uh, one of the uh, secret services. In those days it was the KGB. And, and um, they're, easy, they're easy to install in a country. You know, you have a contingent that works at the UN, so half of your guys will be KGB. Uh, folks like me, the training for folks like me was much more uh, stringent, and you, you, you had to have a special person to do this. We were supposed, and there were a few others like me, I understand, we were supposed to embed ourselves in society and become part of it, uh, and to be doing, be able to do things that uh, the always under observation official, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, official, uh, officials couldn't do, and to be there in case things got really hot and the diplomats would be kicked out of the country. So, so the biggest value that uh, the Soviet Union uh, attached to somebody like me was the fact that we were there yeah. and could be used in an emergency, so to speak. And to establish your identity as someone who, for all intents and purposes, looked like an American, uh, you had to get some identification. And the story starts with a library card? Well, yeah. The, the, um, I, after, after Chicago, I went to New York, where I then uh, went, started the task of uh, first finding a residence, which wasn't that easy, uh, and uh, then getting documentation. Now, I had with me a birth certificate that was, a, uh, an uh, was acquired by one of those residents. Uh, birth certificate of a, a young man who died at the age of 10 by the name of Jack Barsky. It was, it was an authentic a copy of the birth certificate. And in order to get a driver's license, you need the birth certificate and, a, and a, some kind of proof of ID. And a library card 
was sufficient in those days. And so we thought, well, getting a library card, that's so easy. You know, just go to the library, the librarian will just give you that thing and you're done. Uh, not so. <laughs> so I go to the library, he says, I, can I have a card? So, well, you, yeah, we need proof of, proof of residence. You have an electric bill? Oh no, it's just, all I had was a hotel bill, right? And I couldn't use that because that would be a dead giveaway. There's something that's wrong with this guy. So now I sent communication back to the center and said, this is not working. you have any advice for me? Uh, try your best. <laughs> so now, now, you know, I desperately was looking. It got really, uh, it, it, it sounded like I was going to fail right at the beginning. And failure was not part of my DNA. I hated that. Uh, so, um, you know, I tried to think about, you know, I, I, I read newspapers, uh, you know, I, I, I just tried to find a way to get some proof of an address. And in my wanderings in the city, I, uh, uh, I went to the Museum of Natural History and they had a membership drive. And I sent something there and I said, well, do you, do you get proof that you are a member? Oh, yes, we give you a card. And so I got a membership card for $30 at the Museum of Natural History where they wouldn't ask for proof of residence. They just put my name and address. With that, I could then get the library card. And, you know, I, I did good. <laughs> <laughs> so just so you know, our, our first line of defense in the U.S. is actually the librarians. They're on the <laughs> Well, you're not joking. The first line of defense should be... A lot of people, but I don't want to go there. It has to do with cyber, yeah. cyberspace and so yeah. forth. Um, so you get established uh, some identity here, and your first job was a bike messenger? Yeah, that was a bit of a come down from, you know, I had taught already math and chemistry at a pretty high level at university for a year. And so, yeah, I, you know, I couldn't bring any of my credentials with me, so I had no work history that... My backstory was that uh, I'd spent many years on a farm, and I, at one point, had the urge to go back to the big city and start over. No work history, so what do you do? You something with, where you don't don't need qualifications. And I knew how to ride a bike, so, and you got hired real easily. Yeah. Uh, no background check, no nothing. Here's here, here's packages go. Yeah. So at I, I, at some point you realize, man, this is not going to be a quick route to sort of. The That's inroads. Right. Uh, no. So you go back to school here. I did. And, uh, and you uh, study computers. Yes, I did. And, and you did pretty well. I did very well. I actually, um, I graduated first in class. Which, which is a mistake. Which was a big mistake. You know, my, my ambition just ran away with me because you know, I always wanted to be the best, right? And here was an <laughs> opportunity to compete again, and I won. And then the <laughs> dean calls me into his office and says, so what are you going to do for your speech? I said, what speech? Well, you're the valedictorian. I said, <laughs> it was it was the last piece of cultural ignorance that got me into that bind because it's the last thing you want to be as an undercover agent to be in front of 4,000 people at the Felt Forum at Madison Square Garden giving a speech. <laughs> but you got through it. I got through it. Uh, uh, I memorized the speech. It was four minutes. And f for some reason, nobody paid attention that here's a guy who... Uh, got his equivalency diploma four years prior, uh, was 10 years older than the average uh, graduate, and aced the whole program in three years. Something odd, right? I, I think at that point already, in hindsight, I think God protected me. Mm. Because there, he had a long-term plan that when you look at it from, from where I'm at now, and what's also in the book, is that there, there was a well-laid-out plan that uh, I had only some role to play in. There were many others that, that had to, you know, do something or not do something for that plan to work out. Yeah. So uh, you eventually get a job, and uh, over the course of your working life, you do gather some information. Was there any helpful intelligence that you know of that you gave to the Soviet Union? Um, this is a question that I can't answer with certainty, but I, what I'm certain of is that I personally never handled any secret material other than 
a piece of software that was on the do not sell list. In those days, uh, there's a number of things uh, you could not sell to the Soviet Union. And I, I copied some software that uh, was, was widely used commercially, and, and I don't know if it was being used. Uh, I also profiled a whole lot of folks that I got to know. This was one of my tasks was, was to meet people, uh, profile them, who they are, name, uh, where they come from, what they're doing, uh, strengths and weaknesses, potential for, do they have access for, of sec to secrets? Could they possibly have access to secrets in the future? And, is there, and what might be a way to recruit them? And so I have no idea what uh, the Soviets did with that information. There's a possibility that they started, they attempted to recruit some and even succeeded, but they wouldn't tell me. Yeah. So at some point in all of this, uh, you, you start to have some kind of change of heart about working for the KGB. Um, tell me about how that happened. Well, it was a slow process. Initially, um, so, so I really liked the work that I was doing. I worked for uh, MetLife, and it turned out to be a great company. It felt almost like coming home is very paternalistic. Like in East Germany, the, the state took care of us, and here the company took care of us. They paid us well. My management was nice, nice people. I worked with good, um, with good people, uh, and I was able to use my brain again. And as I became a valuable member of that team, with that come responsibilities, you know, weekend work, long hours. And then I had to do this other stuff. <laughs> it became the other stuff. You know, the, the maintenance of, of an undercover identity requires a lot of uh, hours. There's the, there's the shortwave transmission, the, where you get encrypted radiograms that you have to decipher, then you, uh, you uh, send uh, messages back with secret writing and letters, and all of that takes time, including also uh, uh, surveillance detection, uh, and, you know, the stuff just started interfering with my real job. Uh, it was kind of a fun, it <laughs> flipped. It wasn't ideological, it was what I liked doing, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and, and so at, at some point you cut ties, so what led to that decision? Well, and, and this is the fulcrum around which my life turned. It was a absolute 100% personal decision. It was not clouded by ideology, had nothing to do with um, comfort or anything like it. It was very, very personal. Uh, I had fathered a child in this country, and I actually lived, I started, I moved in with the, the child and her mother, who I married. And so for 18 months, I watched this little baby grow up and you know when this is I, I think for men it's different for women when they give birth they immediately bond with with a baby men it takes a while when I really fell in love with that child when she was able to stand up in the crib and the big brown eyes looked at me and and so what I experienced for the first time in my life is true unconditional love it just like it conquered me. You know, I didn't want to do that. It just happened to me. And so when there came a point where uh, the center in Moscow had, they had an idea that uh, my uh, cover was about to be blown, so they called me back, uh, sort of as an emergency withdrawal. And, you know, I knew if I went back, I couldn't see this child again. You know, she would be out of, and I, and I wouldn't have a way to support her remotely because in that case I would have had to, had to tell the KGB that I pretty much uh, was insubordinate and I did a bunch of stupid things so I couldn't do that. So it was either going back and not seeing my child again uh, or staying here and taking the risk that the FBI was indeed on my case or that the KGB, if I stay here, that the KGB would come after me, which there was precedent and I knew, I knew that kind of precedent. They had killed defectors in the past and this was a gut-wrenching decision. And this is almost like at that point, uh, you know, I didn't know how to pray, but somehow, I, you know, it is as if God told me, stay. Yeah. And there's, there's a scene in the book where, where it, clearly, I think it was the hand of, hand of God that made the decision for me. 
uh, it gets to, gets to be too complicated to get too much into detail, so I stayed, defying the odds, and I'm very glad I did. Chelsea is 30 years old now. Yeah. How, how do you, uh, yeah, you can clap for her. You, okay, so you just turn in your resignation letter to the KGB? How, you can't. You just, <laughs> I did. How does that work? What yeah, no, it's, I, think I, I think I should be in the Guinness Book of World Records, except uh, the, the committee would probably have a problem determining whether I'm the only one. But that's a wild guess. Yes, I sent a letter in secret writing. You know, who else in history has resigned in secret writing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I uh, used the second biggest lie in my life to uh, explain why I wouldn't come back and I uh, told him that uh, uh, I had uh, uh, con uh, contracted uh, HIV AIDS, which in those days was pretty much close to a death sentence. And uh, the last thing that they would want back in their country is somebody with that infectious disease. So they actually bought that line. Yeah. I had no idea that they did until way, way later. I, you know, just that was a fundamentally a prayer, this is all I can do, it's the best I can do, I did not want to defect. And the reason I didn't want to defect, and I, I told them that I wouldn't defect, I didn't want um, to put my family back there at risk. Yeah. So this was the way of try to, try to handle this the best way I could. So you faked your own death, lied to the KGB. Uh-huh. That's pretty hardcore, man. That's it, amazing. It's it's hardcore when you look at it from the outside, but as you're doing it, uh, you know, it's just like, it's it was almost robotic. Once I made the decision, well, this is what I'm going to do, and uh, and for three months uh, after that, I, I when when I then I destroyed all the the tools that I used for espionage, and I you know, stopped listening to the radio, and I was just hoping that they wouldn't come after me, and for three months I. Uh, I made sure that I was not predictable as to where I was going to be at a certain point in time. Oh. So I changed routes to work and and then after three months, sort of I figured I was in the clear and yeah. I was for quite a while. Yeah. So, uh, so the strange thing happens, former KGB agent is now in America. You got a good job and you're, you're kind of pursuing the American dream, you know? Yeah. You're moving up you, yeah. and, and you've got your family. So we had, an, we had an, another child. We... We had our first house in the suburbs, then we moved to Pennsylvania, and I knew that I would live out my life as a, you know, as eventually as a, as a manager, director, executive uh, in corporate America and, and retire, not ever going, being able to go back to Germany uh, because I was afraid to apply for a passport. I didn't want to go there, so I was going to yeah. live out a private, quiet life. And, and, and how did that go like how uh, you as you get more success and as your family goes on how how did it turn out um initially it, it was okay you know i was able to to support chelsea uh for to uh, uh fulfill her dream to play division one basketball and she did and i was at the pinnacle of uh, my career making tons of money, and she has a full scholarship. Uh, but what happened, there was a countercurrent. You know, I, once she was gone, and my son was going to be out of the house, and, and the marriage that uh, shouldn't have been, it was a marriage of convenience, wasn't holding anymore. So now I lost a sense of purpose. You know, I didn't go to work and make all that money for myself. I did this for the family. I, I was always trying to support somebody, and and there was there was really n nothing left. I I didn't know why I was here anymore, mm. and I, I and then I got depressed, and I started drinking, um, mostly at night. I never missed a day at work, but I missed some weekends. I have to admit, uh, and that was just, I was slowly coming apart at the seams. And as all of this is happening, at the same time, the FBI is actually tracking you. You didn't realize it at first, but eventually you found out. T tell me about that. Yeah, that was pretty much a, a parallel development. Uh, there was a, a defector from the KGB who had enough information on him to, uh, for the FBI to 
find me, identify me, and uh, investigate me. Yeah. And, and so uh, I think at one point you said they actually bought the house next door to you? They, they bought the house next door <laughs> uh, and had uh, two agents live there for a while, and, and I had no clue. I didn't pay attention anymore. You know, I was in the clear. There was nobody was going to find me. Anymore. Yeah. So I was totally oblivious yeah. to any of that going on. Uh, and, and so when did you find out? Uh, when they said hello. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most life-changing hello uh, <laughs> I have ever experienced. And I'm glad they did. But when it happened, which was uh, they faked the traffic stop with a state trooper, and uh, then uh, an FBI agent introduced himself, uh, FBI, we would like to talk to you. At that moment, I, I thought my world was coming to an end because I had no idea what was going to happen to myself and my family. The worst case scenario was that I would wind up in jail. My wife, who got her citizenship through me, she was illegal, and I made her illegal because while I was illegal. <laughs> uh, so she would have been uh, deported, and my kids would wind up uh, as wardens of the state. That was the worst case scenario. The best case scenario at that point I didn't want to pursue because I didn't know what was going to happen. It was a very tense couple of months. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they bring you in, uh, and you, you choose to cooperate, and yes. you, you choose to uh, give them what you know. And so you're made a U.S. citizen, but that has some ripple effects on, on your, your family then. Uh, well, yeah, as my wife, uh, my wife got, uh, as I said, the marriage was already like somewhat tenuous. And when she found out about my past, she got really paranoid. Yeah. You know, she, you know, and I can't blame her. So I've been living with this liar for, the, for my life. And my life here is based on a big lie. I don't know. I can't trust him anymore. Yeah. And so, so this, this wasn't working anymore. And this sort of deepened the crisis that uh, I was in and she was in. Yeah. So, so your marriage falls apart, and this kind of sets you into kind of a spiritual search, too. You start to get restless at this point. It wasn't an active search. This is, when, when, this is the moment when God opened the door and walked right through. And he had a messenger. And that was the first aggressive Christian I ever met. I happened to hire her. <laughs> I needed a new assistant. I was a chief information officer at a large energy company. And I needed a new assistant and we interviewed a few candidates and she was a standout. She was really good. You know, she had a history of uh, having worked for the United Nations, bilingual, uh, very classy. Uh, she was a no-brainer. But she managed to convey, I think she made it, she did that on purpose, that she was a strong, believing Christian. And I had in, my, in the back of my mind, I said, well, I, I, hope, I hope she's not a holy roller because, you know, I, I, I was afraid of that kind of, you know, somebody who would just like come after you. Well, she really didn't, but unbeknownst to me, if you talk to her, she will tell you that, uh, at the time, she had three competing job offers. And God told her, in so many words, you need to go to that company. There's a, I have a mission for you there. Mm. Uh, I'm at a point where uh, I believe her because she's, she has a very good track record when, yeah. when it comes to these things. So uh, it was an open floor situation. She was sitting right across from me. And we got to know each other. Obviously, we were in, we were in each, uh, each other's space. I talked to her about you know, her studies at, uh, at her college. And so this is where, when God, you know, I was already on the hook and he started reeling me in. Knowing my track record, particularly in this situation, for trying to uh, promote, help people in my organization, see what they can do if they could actually eventually do something better, make more money, have a, have a career. So I asked her, so uh, how are you doing in school? She says, oh, I'm getting good grades, mostly A's and B's. And I said, can I see something that you wrote? I want to see how good, you, how good your writing is. So she pulled out an essay. And again, she said there was the Holy Spirit to, to use that essay on the Book of Ruth. 
Old Testament book. Yeah, for a male, and she knew that she she was an evangelist. She she was was already secretly trying to make an impression. So here is the book of Ruth. Uh, I read the uh, essay was well written, and then a light bulb went on. It says, "Oh, you know, I need to I need to see the original to make sure that you know you did it justice." Out came the Bible. I mean, it was right there. <laughs> oh, there it is. I think, I think she even had a, a bookmark <laughs> for that page. But you can take that home and read it. And, and somehow that triggered a curiosity in me because and that's not a surprise that an, an undercover agent that I was always curious. And I had a big gap in my knowledge of the world, and that was the Bible. I knew intellectually, I knew that, that the Bible is the... Uh, most read uh, book in the history of man, and I never read it. I says, well, I got to take a look at this yeah. and see. What, just out of curiosity, this was still not a spiritual quest. But what happened now was, as I'm reading, uh, and Shauna started me in the New Testament, not in the old one, which is how you should read the Bible. And so I had questions. And, you know, in the open floor, we, wouldn't, we, we couldn't talk about this stuff. So we decided that we would do undercover Bible study. <laughs> we, I kid you not. We had uh, a calendar entry, 8.30 to 9, uh, planning session for the day. So we would meet in a small conference, and then they'd talk about the Bible. Uh, and, you know, as... She saw that I got engaged. She said, you know, you, you need to listen to this radio program. So, uh, it's called Let My People Think. She, Shauna knew what she was after. This yeah. is Ravi Zachariah's program. And, and Ravi uh, absolutely grabbed me because this was the first time I heard a, uh, uh, a profound Christian speaker talk, not some fire and brimstone uh, pastor, but somebody who very calmly and quietly explains the reasons for his faith. And that, that really resonated with me. So next thing is, uh, I, I told Sean, I, I like this guy. He says, well, why don't you just uh, read C.S. Lewis? And I started reading C.S. Lewis. What, what Zacharias and Lewis did for me was disabuse me of, of the notion that Christians were you know, feeble-minded people who couldn't help themselves, so needed a crutch to believe in something. There was a phenomenal amount of intellect behind uh, the, these people's thinking, and I found myself in really good company. So now we had, uh, you know, I became a deist. I became a believer in there must be a God. I wasn't a Christian yet. That there's, there's another step that needed uh, to happen. Yeah, I know there are some of you here who uh, you might find yourself in a similar situation to this. You're, you know, you're interested in knowing about Christianity, but you've got intellectual questions, really good uh, objections to say, uh, you know what, I think probably these religious people are fooling themselves uh, because of this and that reason. And those questions are standing in the way of you taking seriously the claims of Jesus. Uh, here at Christ Community Church, we actually take those questions really seriously ourselves. Uh, that's why this summer we're doing an eight-week series uh, talking about uh, the questions we can't ignore. We're going to be talking about uh, why a good God would allow suffering. What about those other religions? Uh, what do we do with uh, some of the tricky stuff in the Bible that just doesn't seem to square with things? And uh, so if you're wrestling with some of those questions, I would really encourage you, uh, take a look at the list of the things we're talking about. It's on the back of the weekly welcome. It's on our website. Uh, and maybe find the week where it's like, that's my question. I'm going to make sure I'm going to show up that week. Or, or maybe you want to say, hey, this is the summer where I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to spend eight weeks and I'm going to do some serious thinking uh, and wrestle with some of these questions and see if maybe there's something actually to this whole God thing. We'd love to have you here uh, to be a part of this series this summer. Well, you did actually eventually end up in a church. So right. Shauna brought you to her so, church. So, so all the while, while I was studying these uh, uh, phenomenal thinkers and I was reading the Bible, uh, I, as I said, I was still not a Christian, but one day... I asked Shauna, so why don't you take me to your church? And she was, had been waiting for that. <laughs> and she didn't take me to her church, which was Pentecostal. 
she knew that uh, this middle-aged German probably wouldn't do very well in a Pentecostal setting. So she got me to a place like this one, right? And uh, I, I was really anxious and uh, mortified, really, because that would have been the first time I go to a church not being a tourist, like looking at the building. There would be people in there doing stuff. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I had no idea, you know, watching some of the fire and brimstone preachers on, uh, on TV and some of the disgraced ones that, uh, that I knew about from my past. Uh, so I didn't know what to expect. So I really, I went to the parking lot. I came there early and then I waited for Shauna, that's her name. And I waited and I waited and when she finally came, I says, I'm glad you came because I would not have gone in by myself because I was afraid once I opened the doors, I would be tackled by two 250-pound guys and, and be asked to, you know, uh, to confess all my sins or else. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I had no idea what to expect. As we walked in there together, nobody paid attention. So there was nice music like here, and uh, that was good. So the, the tension left my body, and then the pastor started his sermon. First of all, the one thing that I noticed right away, he had the same expression on his face as Shauna did, a glow that is very difficult to describe. There's something, a sense of uh, peace, uh, tranquility, and sense of certainty. So he was a very attractive person just to look at. And then he started talking about, his sermon was about the love of God. Now here's me coming in there, uh, who had a big void when, when it comes to love. You know, I had given all my love to Chelsea and Jesse, my son. I got nothing back. And there was the love relationship with my ex-wife had completely disappeared. And here's somebody who talks about love. And that resonated with me very much. So I did something rather um, unusual for me at the time. I went to to the front after the service was over and I introduced myself and I said, you have a great delivery. <laughs> Out came another Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it, it's one of those he gave, you know, every time he met a new person he, he would uh, give out a Bible. And then out came a book and somehow this man, you know, being a, a very bright uh, um, pastor, uh, he recognized that uh, he was dealing with a, a man of some intellect. There was another book that came out, and it's uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. He said, read this. So at this point, I started reading things, and I had already read a few things, so I read this. And Lee Strobel, some of you might know uh, his story. He was a, an atheist and journalist and started pursuing whether, uh, the idea whether Christ was real whether he was a historical figure and whether the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, whether there is actual proof for this, and there was. So I, I have a saying here that, uh, you know, people say that curiosity uh, killed the cat. In this case, curiosity, my curiosity killed the atheist in me because Because uh, I realized that this uh, Christianity isn't just blind faith. It's not a feel-good fairy tale, but there's a, there's a historic foundation to it. N now we're getting really serious. W w there was still one thing missing, and there's one thing I think everybody who, as an adult, be uh, uh, became a Christian has this one moment when he knew Deep down inside, it's maybe the Holy Spirit enters you, but the, when, when you know that Jesus was real. And that moment happened to me at an odd place, a golf course. <laughs> On a golf course? Yes. I, I don't know. I was waiting there, <laughs> I was staring in, in the sky, and, and it just hit me. It's just like, yeah. And so the following weekend, I, I went to the altar, and I gave my life to mm -hmm. Jesus. And I was baptized. And then I was baptized a few weeks thereafter. 
And uh, there's a one thing that uh, then occurred to me when, when I started looking at my life and you know the whole idea of what am I here for, what's my purpose. Uh, I had lost an illusion and the illusion was that I'm intrinsically good. You know, I always thought of myself as a good person, so, and I signed up for a good cause, right? The cause was communism. And in, in, the, in pursuing, uh, pursuing this cause, I did some pretty bad things. I didn't hurt anybody physically, but I hurt people. I broke laws. But I rationalized this because it was all in pursuit of a greater good. Now, that greater good, the communist ideology as a foundation was taken away from me, what was left was naked sin. Mm. And that makes you feel terrible if yeah. you want to be good. So, and there's only one person that can take that away, and it was Jesus mm. on the cross. And that is where I, well, I'm today, uh, I, I find myself in a good place, and I know that Jesus actually died on the cross to help me overcome my sinful nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are some of you here that I know uh, you can identify with Jack's story because you, like him, are a secret agent or you're married to one. <laughs> um, but beyond just those things, uh, you, you find yourself at some point resonating with his story. Maybe you have uh, pursued success and you've worked hard in a, a company or for your family and you've achieved that and you realize, man, it, it's not all it was cracked up to be. There's some emptiness here. Or, or maybe you've got some intellectual questions that you're wrestling with and you're, you're open to uh, thinking about God, but you're, you're just not so sure that it's there. Or maybe it's more the heart stuff and you, you say, you know, I, I've got a past, I've got secrets, I've got things that I've done that I know I, I, I regret. And you wonder, is there any way of getting beyond that past, of actually uh, moving past uh, those things that I've done and actually finding some forgiveness, some redemption in life? Or maybe you, you hear talk about love, the love of God, the unconditional love of God, and you, maybe you're even afraid to ask the question, could I actually be loved like that? And I just want to tell you right now, the answer to that question is yes. Yes, you can be loved unconditionally. And not only that, you are loved unconditionally. And the reason I know that is because of what Jesus did. You got to understand this. Every single person, you were made for a purpose. You were made for a relationship with God. To know God's love and his goodness and his joy. To experience that in your life. And not just to experience that, but actually to, to be sent out to wherever you are in, in the world to uh, spread some of that love and that goodness wherever you're at. That's what you were made for. That's your purpose, to be in a relationship with God and, and to spread that in, in other places. But what have we done with that assignment? You know, all, every single one of us, uh, we've decided that we would go our way instead of God's way. I mean, don't we do it a, a thousand times a day? Uh, we say, well, I, I could do the thing that I know is right, but instead I put myself at the center. I make a life around me. I do things that I know are going to harm other people, even people I say that I love. And a thousand times a day we do these little things that, that we, where we disconnect ourselves from God. And this is what our sin does. It disconnects us from God. And when we disconnect from God, who is the giver of life, the natural consequence for that is death. It's the reason why we die physically, why we die spiritually, and if nothing's done about it, it's the reason we die eternally, why we spend eternity separated from God. We've got a serious, serious problem here, and it's one we can't solve ourselves. But here's the good news. God sees that we can't solve that problem, and so he sent a solution. He sent a savior. He sent his son, Jesus. And so what Jesus did is he lived the life that you and I should have lived. He, he remained connected to God. He, he spread that love and that goodness wherever he went. He did the things we were supposed to do. But not only that, he actually died the death that we deserved. When Jesus went to the cross, what he was doing is he, he was taking on all of the consequences, all of the pain, all of the suffering that we deserved and said, I'm going to take it on myself. I'm going to pay the price you couldn't pay so that you don't have to. 
And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid that price. And then when he rose from the dead, what he was doing was he was opening up new life. He was saying there is a way for us to be reconnected to God, the giver of life. He was opening the door for us to come back to him. So the question is, how do you respond to that? Well, the Bible is really clear. Uh, what we're expected to do is not to try to get ourselves cleaned up and get everything uh, together in life and have everything in order and just come to God, you know, with this perfect package and say, am I worthy? Instead, what God says to do is, is simply surrender. Uh, right where you are, come exactly as you are and say, God, I, I need you right here. This, this decision to surrender to God looks like this. It's, it's letting go of that way you were living before, saying, I built my life around me. I no longer want to do that. And, and saying, you know what, God, I trust you. I trust what Jesus did to be the thing that rescues me. I trust Jesus to be the king of my life, to be in charge. I don't want to be that anymore. I need you to save me, God. And so that's the good news, that God has rescued us and he gives us a chance to receive new life in him. Now, there are some of you here who are thinking, I'm ready for that. I'm ready to surrender to Jesus and receive what he's done. And so I want to give you a chance to do that today. If you've never done that before, it's really, really simple how you make that decision to surrender. You simply pray. Uh, prayer is just talking to God and saying uh, that you want to surrender. So we're going to do that right now. Uh, I'm going to do that here in St. Charles. And at each of our campuses, our campus pastors are going to come out uh, and they're going to lead you in a prayer uh, if you want to surrender today. So let's do that right now. The prayer we're going to pray has three parts. It's very simple. We're going to say to God, I'm sorry, thank you, and please. And so if you want to pray that prayer of surrender, follow along with me. I'm going to pray in the, in the quietness of your heart and your mind. You can pray along with me. Uh, and then I'm going to give you a moment just to express yourself without talking uh, what you're thinking to God. So let's pray. God, I'm sorry. I I'm sorry because I know uh, that I have done things I shouldn't do. Uh, that I, I have thought and I have had attitudes that I know I, I shouldn't have that I've made myself the center instead of uh, being connected with you. I have gone my way instead of your way, and I am wrong, and I am sorry. T take a moment now just uh, in silence to maybe talk about something specific that you want to say sorry to God about. The next step is to say thank you. Say, God, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to save me. Thank you, Jesus, for coming uh, to die for my sins, to pay the price I couldn't pay. Uh, thank you for rising from the dead and bringing new life for anyone who would receive it. Jesus, thank you for what you've done. Go ahead and express that in your own heart to God. And now we say, please, please, God, forgive my sin. Make me new on the inside. Transform me. Welcome me into your family. I want to be your son, your daughter. I want to be uh, with your people. God, give me new life and give me eternity with you in heaven. Say please to God. Express that to him. Well, we're going to stand together now, and we're going to sing one final song uh, that expresses God's invitation for us to come just as we are. Oh, and as we do that, let's thank Jack for sharing his story.